Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. This episode is brought to you by Curiosity Stream. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. We're back. We are. We survived another fortnight. Uh, seems seems that way. So should we uh, get started with the episode by inflating a space that we will then be able to enter? Is that how pre-flight checklist works? <laughs> you have to like create the habitat before you can enter it? Well, it's how space works now because beam, beam happened. Beam, which we've been talking about and we've been talking up, uh, had, a, had an astronaut inside it. Uh, we spoke about it last time with Lauren Grush and it's of course been in the news a bunch. But Beam finally got inflated. There was actually a little touch and go there with the expansion of the module. Where they, yeah, uh, the first day they applied some air to it and it didn't quite act as expected. They let it sit and actually, I think as it sat, it expanded some more and it sort of came back to where it should be. And uh, as of yesterday or a couple of days ago, uh, astronaut Jeff Williams opened the uh, the hatch into the Beam module and has now been inside and it is so far seems to be going according to plan. Yeah. I mean, it's all in space terms, right? Like they want to be very careful. So they inflated it carefully and then him going inside it. It's like literally like you opening a closet door and looking inside. I mean, it's very small, but he did float in there and check a few things. And I read that they only actually anticipate the hatch to be open and for somebody to go in like three or four times a year. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the whole idea here is it's really a long term test of whether an inflatable habitat has issues before they put anything in it or do anything with it permanently because they want to see will this work or will this not work so he floated in there there's a funny picture that i saw that's the you know an astronaut inside beam and since we're looking kind of in the hatch he's floating in there um which from our perspective you see the bottom of his feet you know but of course in space no gravity he's you know he's he might as well be floating up into the into it from his perspective but from our perspective we see the bottom of his feet to which i i, I noticed he is wearing his space socks it's important which are our socks they're socks they have the little gold i think he had like little gold gold yeah. tips on the toes yeah so Targets, they, they stopped by target on the way to uh to russia <laughs> yeah. and pick up some socks pick up some socks yeah they, that is the baikonur target they do that on the way to the Cosmodrome. There's a target. They can pick up their space socks. So, but it's cool. Beam is inflated. So now there, the, you know, there is an inflatable module attached to the space station. An astronaut has been in it. They will continue to monitor it. And if all goes well, perhaps that'll be the future of, uh, you know, expandable space modules. So we'll see. Oh, I wanted to mention, so uh, one of our past uh, guests, our most recent past guest, Lauren Grush from The Verge, did a nice piece that uh, we'll put in the show notes uh, that's basically a year of New Horizons, and she—it's uh, a nice video that the Verge, the Verge video team is really good, and they put it together. And she interviewed Alan Stern, the principal investigator of the New Horizons team, and uh, it's a fun little video. It's not very long; it's I think seven minutes uh, about the Pluto flyby. It's a good uh, bit of. Uh, bit of sort of nostalgia for the excitement of last summer when we got to see all this data and also uh he talks a little bit about the fact that the that you know they're still receiving data over a Mm -hmm. year later so oh and somebody's tweeted at us by the way about a uh a fox news commentator tried to use the fact that uh 
that uh, New Horizons is still sending data back as an example of how poorly funded NASA is. And uh, it was Greta Van Susteren. And, uh, you know, the fact is that, you know, there's technical reasons. It's not like they're 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 waiting for funding to send back the data. It's uh, it's it's because of the way the spaceship is built and how far away they are. Um but uh, it, it led to a, a vociferous Twitter debate about like NASA funding. And somebody actually asked us to talk about how the uh, how the November election in the U.S. might affect uh, space exploration. I think we're probably not going to touch that with a 10 meter cattle prod, as they say in Ghostbusters. But uh, it is interesting. Like we it is a theme on this show a little bit that NASA is not just. I mean, it's politics. It's a government bureaucracy. So it is. there is politics involved. And uh, what's really funny is that a lot of the political calculus that you usually make is uh, kind of inverted when you talk about space, because um, oftentimes people who are super pro-science are at odds with a lot of the Republicans because the Republicans do things like deny the science of climate change. Um, but when it comes to NASA, traditionally Republicans have been much more supportive of space exploration than Democrats. So um, even in sort of political support for science, there are schisms and it's a mess. And I don't think we could ever say with any clarity how um, how a particular election will affect space exploration, because I think it's more complicated than that. But um Anyway, so that that's there you go. I think that might be all we have on the topic, but who knows? We might revisit it down the road. Did yeah. it just make you uncomfortable? No, no. I'm, okay, good. I'm fine talking about politics. But, all right. Uh, um, <laughs> it it is one of the weird th- weird things about about it, right? Is that you've got these people on science committees who deny basic science about things like yeah, climate change or evolution, let's say, and teaching science in schools. Mm. But at the same time, those are often uh, those people or people from that same party are really excited about space exploration. Um, and so you you know if you're somebody who kind of believes in scientific fact, you kind of look at that and you're like, well, I don't really know what to think about these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all of that, right? Agreed. Right. Yeah. So we're going to talk this week um, about two interviews, one by Elon Musk, one by Jeff Bezos at the uh, Code Conference. Um, Jason, could you give us a little maybe background on this conference and why sure. why it matters? Yes, this is our so everybody out there, this is billionaires saying crazy stuff at a conference. Uh, it's our special episode. Maybe we'll do this every year. Uh, the D conference is what it used to be called. It's now called the Code Conference because uh, Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher set this. Uh, they had a site called All Things D, and they did a conference in Southern California. It's on the coast uh, outside of LA, and a beautiful location. Uh, resort. It used to be in San Diego County. I went once when it was in San Diego County, and then they moved it to LA. Uh, one of the things that they do when they set it up, this will give you an idea of what this conference is uh, from when it was with the Wall Street Journal, is they make sure that there's access for uh, for uh, private planes, that there, there's a nearby executive airfield that they can they can land in and very quickly go to the, uh, to the venue, because uh, that's the kind of people who come, not just the guests, but the attendees. So it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's quite a crowd. Um, when they moved from uh, Wall Street Journal to their own 
uh, company, which is now owned by Vox Media, who does The Verge. They renamed it uh, Code Conference because their site became Recode, uh, but it's the same. It's essentially the same. I think that it's the same event team putting it on, and it's the same venue. And uh, they have guests from tech and mostly the tech industry, but also there's there's other sort of like science and politics that come. But it's got a, a mostly technical, you know, technology angle to it. Mm-hmm. And people, they they you know, there are you know receptions and people have drinks and stuff and you can stand out there and look over the pacific ocean from these cliffs overlooking the pacific in this like golf course resort thing it's beautiful um, oh i should mention that that's uh, in addition to the executive airfield um the presence of a golf course is also required apparently and they even do like a golf outing the day before i find this all fascinating as someone who does not own a plane uh and does not <laughs> oh, play golf really? So, uh, but they do all those things and, uh, and then they also have sessions during the day and in the evening where, uh, interesting people are interviewed by people from the staff of Recode. So Walt and Kara and other people at Recode and two of their guests this time, I've been there when it was like Steve Jobs a couple of times, uh, was, appeared there. That was sort of the only freewheeling interview that Steve Jobs would give after a while was to Walt, yeah. uh, at, at the D conference. Um, and they had both Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos this time. And those gentlemen are famous for things like Tesla and Amazon, but they are also both people involved in companies that do space stuff. So uh, it ended up being a kind of a spacey set of, uh, in more ways than one, uh, set of uh, interviews at the at the Code Conference. Hey, it's fun. You know, both you and I come from a more technology background and have kind of stumbled into this the space coverage so it's nice to see those two worlds touch a little bit but um both the interviews are are interesting we're going to kind of go through some things that jumped out at us but i think the the big picture kind of the big thing to remember with any sort of uh, interview like this is that these guys are always like especially bezos i think more than elon musk like they're always kind of playing the game right like they know that it's it's a public event it's going to be streamed on the internet. People are going to talk about it. Um, and so it's not, you know, that's always kind of got to be in the back of your mind when you, when you sort through, um, sort through what they say. And we held a, uh, a, a straw pick and Elon Musk won. So we're going to talk about his first. Okay. It's not really true. I just watched we, his first. It's in order of who's actually put things in orbit. Whoa. Sickest of oh, burns. Oh, that guy, the guy who hates me talking nice things about SpaceX has got to be really mad at me now. No, I, I mean, I, yeah. I, they're both, we could have done it in order of who has the biggest company, in which case Jeff Bezos would go first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we didn't. Alpha- we went alphabetical by first name. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So only fair way to do it. So a lot of conversation, obviously, about SpaceX. And kind of the big thing for me that I, I drew from this, the early part of this conversation, is how much effort Musk and his team have put into educating the public in not only about what SpaceX is doing, but sort of about like the space industry at large. And I think a good example of it are those launch broadcasts that they do, and which are, you know, on the surface of it, very PR motivated, right? You have thousands of people watching your rocket, hopefully, um, not crash. fly successfully. It's yeah. good for your brand. Mm-hmm. It's good for your company. But even in those, they infuse those with like scientific data and flight information. Even the hosts, like one of the guys who's on most of them, 
as like a farmware engineer for something, which is like the nerdiest job you could think of. But he's kind of explaining things in a way that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand. And I think that's really like a powerful thing. And I think it's one of the things that sets SpaceX apart from, say, the United Launch Alliance, which is this big, like faceless paramilitary operation that there's no like way in there's no way to engage with it there's no way to have an emotional connection with that company like people do with tesla or spacex or apple or or google and i think that that has served them really well and i think that you know we've talked a lot about it with the new horizons team as well like you can use data and you can you can use education and like pr and like mix it all together and that works really well and it's worked well for spacex so far yeah yeah, I agree. Yeah, they talk about the landings. They talk about, um, he talks about the space shuttle a little bit, throw some shade on the shuttle uh, program that, you know, there, there's a reason that people, that we have used rockets and capsules and that the shuttle was a step away from that. And I think in Musk's opinion, a mistake. And now we're going back to that because that design is not only simpler, but their big goal is uh, reusability. So they talk, he talked a lot about their uh, their goals in you know, the the next next little bit of time talking about reflying one of the landed falcon nines in the next two to three months that's a date we had heard already they've got i think they've got four of them now in their hangar the first one they're not going to uh to fly but these other three one of those will be reflown uh, by the end of the summer and they're going to move on to the falcon heavy which we haven't really talked about much but it is a much larger version of their rocket it's got five million pounds of thrust which will put it at twice the power of any other rocket currently flying it's like two-thirds the size uh, of the Saturn V. And as you would imagine with, with a new vehicle like this, uh, the first launch will be a demo. You don't, you don't want to have your, your customer payload on a Cross first me. flight. Well, sometimes they do that in space, right? Sometimes they do that where you, you factor in the cost of, uh, of the risk versus the, uh, the you know, a, a reduced rate. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that is part of the equation, but it sounds like this is enough of a risk that they're gonna <laughs> it's purely a test flight uh, because you know somebody might be like yeah you know what we're gonna take a chance although Fal- the thing with Falcon Heavy is that you know anything you'd load on it would it would be very big <laughs> and so right. it'd be very expensive and if it yeah if it blows up then that's really really it's probably hard to, hard to hard to recoup your your expenses there I, I wanted to say um you know, two-thirds the size of the Saturn V, I mean, this is one of those things that, yeah, it's so much later since the Saturn V flew that you that it, it's easy to get dispirited and be like, well, what do you mean? It's not even up to the specs of the Apollo program. But nothing the size of the Saturn V has flown since the Saturn V. It is, you know, we, we, we haven't had that kind of launch capacity since then. So uh, their their goal is to get up there beyond the Saturn V and and the Falcon Heavy is the start of that process for for SpaceX. Yeah, it's going to be a, a heck of a thing. And you know, we went from Apollo to the shuttle, going you know low Earth orbit, much smaller payloads with the uh, you know the pickup truck bed in the back of the shuttle. Mm-hmm. So this is a a big a big step um, in going to Mars and going back to the Moon and doing more things in low Earth orbit, where you just need the ability to get bigger stuff off the ground. Yeah, and Musk teased, uh, and a part we'll we'll come to later, but I'll, I'll I'll mention it now. He teased that the Falcon Heavy, you know, they've got something heavier beyond it. That to do the stuff they need to do to get stuff to Mars, it will take, uh, and I quote, a very big rocket. But he wasn't willing to, 
he said, I think later this year they will have an event where they're going to detail uh, a bunch of stuff that we'll be getting to in a second. And part of that will be the very big rocket. So um, it's already, you know, like you said, twice as powerful as the as as the next rocket, this Falcon mm-hmm. Heavy. And uh, but they're still not at Saturn V levels. So there's there's even more there's even more room to go. That'll be quite a sight to see when that thing yeah. launches, won't it? It's going to be a lot louder than the Falcon 9 is. They're working up to having a launch every two to four weeks of the of the Falcon Nine. You can you can see even since their uh, their loss in June of last year, coming up on a year, they have been slowly increasing the frequency of yeah. flights. They have another one, I think, uh, later this week or early next week. Well, they they landed. They had another first stage land on a drone ship uh, since we last did an episode. Yeah. It's, and you know we didn't even mention it in the follow up, but they they did it again. They had another one. Yeah. How quickly things become routine, I guess. I guess. But every two to four weeks is is their goal here. And uh, again, working towards that bigger rocket and working towards flying Dragon 2, which is the their commercial crew capsule, which can right. take seven astronauts to the International Space Station. He said as early as next year, you know, NASA commercial crew is at 2018, so I'm not really sure where that's going to land. But, you know, they are uh, working very quickly to getting astronauts into space from american soil again yeah and then there they also have a plan which again he's probably overly optimistic about about saying 2018 but that's his thing though like but it's just those dates around yeah, tesla d- did the same thing so it, it, it if they've got the dragon 2 capsule and they've got the falcon heavy one of the things they can do once they're testing those even if they're not you know people or cargo on is they can do what he says they're going to do in 2018, which is you put a Dragon 2 on a Falcon Heavy and you send it to Mars, which would be private, not just private company in space, it would be private company sending a capsule to another planet, which is pretty uh, pretty wild. And there's un- it's unclear what they would do there. I think he said that they have a lot of Mars planning that SpaceX is doing that they're not going to talk about until September. but. Um, but that is like in his timeline is as soon as they've got the rocket capable of it and the capsule that's capable of it to start sending stuff to Mars, which is, I, and I don't know whether they would, they would be just like, are they going to try to land a capsule? Are they just going to have it be in orbit? Are they going to try to deploy a satellite? Uh, you know, what, what is the story there? And he wouldn't get into more details than that, but this is, you know, I, I love the ambition, whether it's realistic or not remains to be seen, but I love the ambition of saying, no, we're going to send, we're going to use our stuff that we are building and we're going to send something to Mars because why not? Yeah. And one thing I'm unclear on, and maybe this, this event they're going to do sheds more light on it, but you know, talk about going to Mars and doing these things. Right now, SpaceX flies customer hardware. So they exactly they put a satellite in orbit. They're going to put astronauts into low Earth orbit. They're doing that uh, as a vendor mm-hmm. to NASA or a private company. Right. So who's paying for sending a capsule around Mars? Or it, and even if nobody is because it's a test, what's the market there? What what where? How do they make their money? Uh, d- d- is that NASA? Does NASA say, forget all this Mars planning that we've been doing, we're just going to pay you to take us to Mars? Is that it? I don't know. But either way, he says, 2018, the Dragon 2 to Mars. You know, the you talked about his uh, habit, I guess, of 
saying dates that don't, you know, it's aren't like really... Micro- it's like Microsoft in the 80s and 90s where they would pre-announce things way in it advance. Never happened. Um, and well, sometimes it would happen, but it would be like so far in advance. Um, yeah. And so he said, yeah, we're going to send 2018. We're going to send a Dragon 2 to Mars. We're going to be able to send, since the, the launch window is every two years, we're going to send more stuff in 2020 and 2022, uh, more hardware to Mars. And then by 2024, we're going to send people. Boom. It's wild, isn't it? Like, like all the countries of the world put together uh, are not capable of sending anybody to Mars before, you know, 2030. And Elon Musk is like, yeah, I think I can do it in eight years, uh, which, you know, you, you got to love the boldness of that. But embedded in that conversation, he said, I thought something interesting, which uh, is we've got the ability to send equipment, hardware, you know, st- cargo to Mars every two years. So I think, again, September will probably outline some of this, but a lot of the the Mars uh, mission sketches that people have done have involved this idea of, of, of pre- preloading the site. Mm-hmm. You send a bunch of stuff and land it in the place where you're going to send your astronauts and it gets up and running and it's making fuel for the return trip. And it's, you know, it's deploying a Rover and it's mapping the terrain. So you know where to land. It does all of that as prep work. So when the people come, they have a place to go and they have, they already have their fuel for their return. So they know they can get back into orbit and all of that stuff. Um, And presumably that's part of the story here is, how do you get people to Mars unless you build a giant spacecraft or something, which nobody's going to be doing anytime soon? And this is the answer, is you send a bunch of stuff to Mars, and then it's waiting for them when they get there. In that conversation, there's been talk of, are, are these crewed missions one way? And yeah. uh, Musk has been, this came up in the in the interview, and he said that he he has been misquoted in saying this, but... If you have to pick a place to die, basically, why not Mars? Yeah. And I don't think, I think the quote has been that he wants to die on Mars. And I think he backed off of that in this interview. But the idea that we may be in a situation where we can send crew to Mars, but you can't get it back. And what does that mean? Does that mean that you have uh, a colony? Does that mean that you there are going to be children right. born on Mars? Like that opens a whole can of worms that. I can't even think about. Well, what he said was, um, you know, in September, we're going to outline our Mars colonization plans. That's how he put it, right? He 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 has seemed to have bought into this idea. And it's an interesting one. A lot of this is like you got to step outside of your kind of like NASA astronaut uh, pants and think about this. But in, they're so cozy. In, in their flannel. Uh, and they got the socks, too. Uh, you got to step outside that a little bit and think about this of like, you know, um, explorers to people who came to to uh not the explorers necessarily but the colonists who came to uh the americas mm-hmm. had no intention of going back um the key was is it a place that you can live can you stay there and you can live and the the idea with space is uh probably not but if you could if you could stay there then do you need to have a defined you know the when when people talk about dying on Mars, the plan is not to just ship somebody to Mars and let them hang around for 20 days and then die, right? The idea is either you ship them there with a way to come back 
or you ship them there and they don't have a way to come back just then, but they can stay alive there indefinitely and more people will come and things will grow. And yes, there will also be ways for people to return down the road. And that's all part of this bigger plan. That's not the same as shipping somebody off to die. But, you know, <laughs> NASA doesn't like that, right? NASA's never going to send anyone anywhere without the ability for them to abort at any time and come home with everybody alive. But SpaceX could have different rules if they wanted to. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I think Musk's line about uh, dying on Mars is a, is a good one. He's, he's not saying he wants to die on Mars, but he, he is saying that that wouldn't be a bad place. Of to, to be born on Earth and die on Mars would be a pretty remarkable life. And I think that's what he's that's what he's getting at more than anything else with that. So, yeah, that's overstated. It's funny to watch that because, you know, he's kind of blowing Walt and Kara's mind when he's talking to them about this. And it, for us, it's kind of stuff we've talked about on on this podcast and things we've seen before uh in on the web but for them you know they're not as deep into the space stuff their their minds are kind of boggled at the the idea that people might go to mars and people might actually want to stay there and not just come back to earth i mean i can see that from that perspective right that it does seem quite honestly a little nutty but yeah. uh you know some some people are wired for that i think some people are wired to do something game changing well and and i saw there was a story uh I don't know, sometime in the last year where they were they were interviewing people. I think some of them were former astronauts, but it's it's people who said, you know, if if we could send you to Mars to be a colonist, but we but you wouldn't ever return to Earth, would you go? And some people said, yeah, they would. Right. Some, but and, and, and it tended to be older people. Um, but, you know, like Musk said, I know it does sound kind of crazy, but but uh, we're all going to die. But if you're 60 or 65 and a former, let's say, astronaut or scientist or something like that, and you're given the opportunity to be one of the first people living on Mars and you realize you're probably just, you know, going to stay there until you get sick and then you'll die there and they'll bury you and that'll be it. But you'll be on Mars. Uh, and what a great adventure that is at the end of your life. Uh, again, not not the plan to have you be there for a month and then just die. It's not like Logan's some weird Martian Logan's run. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's different. It's it's there's some nuance there, and the nuance gets lost. But um, you know, I, who knows? Who knows what the approach is here? Uh, there, the, not every vision of planetary exploration is a NASA mission where six people land and are there for a couple of weeks and then take back off and come home, right? Not every, or, or, or a couple of months or whatever it is, not every vision of space exploration works like a NASA mission. And Musk is open to that. He's obviously read a lot of science fiction and he's read a lot of space speculation from people who have thought a lot about how Mars exploration would work. It's all buzzing around in his head. Sometimes it's hard for him to get it all out because he is not the best spoken guy. Yeah. in the world he's very bright and very enthusiastic um but he's not always the best public speaker and that conversation leads into his idea that humanity should be a multi-planet species and this is really where musk and bezos sort of visions break and we're going to get to that a little bit later but musk has a, a firmly held belief that you know humanity should spread out in our solar system and then to other star systems and that's that's our future, not only from a perspective of that's how we survive, but that's there's almost sort of this idea that that's our destiny in, in what he says. And he believes that his work through SpaceX is, is building the groundwork for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that, he, he maybe the strangest phrase in all this, uh, Earth-based profit is going to be important for space, SpaceX. That <laughs> all this paying work they're doing now is 
is funding their research and funding their their new vehicles and getting them to the next level. I think Be- I think Bezos and and Musk are not that far off, honestly. I think it's the way that they phrase it, and also the fact that it's hard to communicate it to people who don't. I, I don't want to say don't understand, but who haven't thought about these issues for yet, and so they're brand new, and it takes them a while to process it. And I think that was. That was the the challenge because, you know, Bezos was talking about moving heavy industry into orbit, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. a similarly kind of bizarre science fictional premise. I guess you're right. And they, they both spent time talking about like the entrepreneurial opportunities that would come up if if we are on Mars. Like someone's got to yeah. build the first pizza place, you know, yeah. and someone's yeah. got to do the first of everything. And that opens the door to all sorts of opportunities. And I mean, we'll get to Bezos in a minute with the heavy industry in space, but yeah, but like exploring other planets, there are, there's exploration and there are also, uh, there are also profits to be made out there if you're a business person, because if you have, if, if you're Elon Musk and you've got the first act direct access to space by a private company, presumably there's a way for that to be a business, right? You have something nobody else has or nobody but governments have. And maybe even things that governments don't have. And that's incredibly valuable, right? And then there's also natural resources out there mm-hmm. in space that are that are uh, that are valuable, not just valuable maybe back on Earth, but valuable to the future of space exploration. Because if you're the one who can get the stuff out of asteroids or something and people want to explore other places in space, they're going to need the materials that you've mined from the asteroids. So it'll, you know, it's big picture stuff and it's kind of way out there, but it's not, uh, it's not an unreasonable worldview when you, you know, give it enough time to sort of like get where they're coming from, I think. And he's not saying abandon the earth. I mean, that's the other thing that I think it's really easy for, it was easy for Walton Carey to be like, shouldn't, you know, why are we leaving the earth? And he's like, no, no, the earth is good. It's the best place in the solar system. And both of them basically said that, but we should be in other places too. Like that's the, that's the next progression in our, in our lives as a, as a species is to Mm -hmm. be other places and not just the one planet. We can't move on until we talk about some of the weird stuff at the end of this interview. (sighs) Yeah. And he's got a lot of big ideas, big ideas. He does. And I think that it's easy to, I mean, some of the stuff is, is a little out there and it's, you know, kind of easy to look at some of the stuff and like, well, you know, does this um, make his thoughts on Mars exploration any less relevant? I don't think they do. I mean, I don't agree with all this stuff, but it's, it's clearly he is thinking about really big picture stuff. You know, he's working, he, he start he founded or co-founded a nonprofit called open AI, which is working to protect, more or less to protect humanity from artificial intelligence that would want to do us harm, which is like the like the most basic science fiction plot right. of any movie or book. And he talked about that. And, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about this a little bit, but his idea was that one of the threats that we have about AI is that if it's a closed AI system that's designed by a company that is trying to make a profit, that, that's, that, that he thinks that's a pathway to danger for humanity. And that the advantage of open AI is like an open source community. It's everybody can see it. Everybody can understand it. And it's not being kind of uh, taken in the wrong direction because of the profit motive. Right. And he was asked, uh, do you think there's a company that, you know, is there a company that you worry about? And he said, very uh, oddly, there's only one. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly it's Yahoo, Jason. Yeah, it's totally Yahoo. It might be Pets.com. It's not Yahoo. I don't think it's that. Uh, he was also asked, and this is the question that has really made the rounds. Uh, he's asked this by uh, Josh Topolsky. Uh, basically, are we in a simulation? You know, is are we in some sort of artificial world? 
Musk eventually answers the question with what he believes. And there's a link uh, to a Quartz article talking about a philosopher who helped shape this idea that Musk apparently holds. It's a really interesting article that you should go check out. But basically that if you look at the the pace in which technology has advanced, you know, we had Pong 40 years ago and now we have 3D VR and, and all of this, you know, just radically more complex and powerful stuff that we are we are approaching a point where it may be indistinguishable from real life. And if that's true, then his the logical next step is that, well, someone beat us to it or something beat us to it. And we are already in a world where we ourselves cannot tell that we're not not in a simulation. <laughs> it's yeah. weird. Super strange. Yeah. Uh, I, for one, don't think we're in a simulation, but I know some people will agree with Musk and disagree with me, but it's... Yeah, it's it's also gets to this. I mean, it brings up a lot of things. It brings up like the anthropic principle, the idea that, you know, there are questions about whether we because we exist is the universe the way it is because we exist in, you know, is our existence the reason the, the universe exists or is it that there are any infinite number of universes and the reason that the conditions in our universe are the way it is is because uh, this is one of the only conditions or the only condition that would allow intelligent life to exist. And if the conditions were different, we wouldn't be here and therefore there'd be nobody to observe it. You can go a long way. In some ways, you're talking about unsolvable um, philosophical questions about the nature of reality. Right. And um, and I feel like it's interesting on one level and completely ridiculous on another level because I think in some ways it just doesn't matter. If we're on a, if our universe, because there are also people who believe like we're not, hey man, it's a simulation, but only you are real and the rest of it is just a, a simulation for you. And and you can, you can, you know, and, and maybe what I say is blue, what you see is something different, but you call it blue too and we don't know. And, and that's very <laughs> freshman college dorm kind of conversations that you can have. I'm just not sure that it matters in the end because, you know, even reality is, is, uh, what it is and we continue to search for it and there are questions about like extra hidden dimensions and you know using string theory to try to find ways to unify the our understanding of the different forces and and make our understanding of of uh, quantum mechanics and newtonian physics uh match better and understanding what all the particles in the standard model are and you can go on and on and on about ways to understand our reality and this seems like something that is like and maybe that reality is the way it is because it's a simulation, but who, I mean, who could tell? Like, there's not a big game over sign somewhere, I hope, because that would be bad, because that would be a really, <laughs> can you imagine the size of the quarter you'd need to get another game? Hmm. Enormous. It's, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's pretty mind, mind-melting. I'm also not sure, I, I think it also understates the, the, uh, this is one of those on an infinite time scale arguments, which is like uh, the complexity required to simulate the universe would mean that there is a universe that the simulation is running in that's much larger and more complex than ours. That's it's essentially saying is our is our universe a, a terrarium on somebody's shelf, and maybe <laughs> it is, but I'm not sure at that point it matters because that's 
you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that's something that's understandable or measurable by us. We can only measure what we can see. Um, so I get the idea that like a perfect simulation would be no different than reality, but, um, I don't think it necessarily logically follows that because a perfect simulation could one day exist, therefore we're in it. I, I think that that there's some fallacies in that line of reasoning, but it's fun, whatever. The funniest thing about it is that Topolsky starts to ask him about it and he apologizes for what a wacky question it is. And Musk already knows what he's going to say. And he's like, yeah. oh, the simulation thing. Like he already knows. Yeah. And he and he says that he and his brother have agreed that they're not going to talk about it when they're hanging out in a hot tub because they've done too much philosophizing in the hot tub about it. And so it's like it's a banned subject now. So he was ready for it. Like, yes. Finally, someone asked me something I care about. Not silly Mars. <sighs> Sigh. Let's uh, let's take a quick break, Jason. Let me tell right. you about our friends at Curiosity Stream. Curiosity Stream is the world's first ad-free nonfiction streaming service. It was founded by John Hendricks, the founder of Discovery Communications. And Curiosity Stream features a ton of great stuff. It's over fourteen hundred titles. It's like six hundred hours of content. It's available in one hundred and ninety-six countries worldwide. Way too often, video stuff is locked into regions. 196 countries, you're set with Curiosity Stream. And it's available on really any platform you would want. The web, Roku, Android, iOS, Chromecast, Amazon Fire, Amazon Kindle, and the Apple TV. They have a wide variety of science and technology content, plus nature, history, and many more topics. And they've got over 50 hours of 4K content, which puts Curiosity Stream the, uh, leading the pack when it comes to large 4K libraries online. Now, Curiosity Stream is more than just documentaries. They also host interviews and lectures like Stephen Hawking's Universe, uh, Next World, which talks about the future of technology, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, maybe if we're a terrarium or not, like Jason said, uh, the human face of big data, the road to the singularity, and much, much more. Monthly and annual plans start at just $2.99 a month, which is less than a cup of coffee or the cost of just one title on competing on-demand platforms. So go check out curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and be sure to use the promo code RelayFM during sign-up to get unlimited access to all this great content, top documentaries, nonfiction series, and it's all completely free for the first 60 days. That's two entire months free uh, for access to one of the largest 4K libraries around. Just go to curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and use the offer code RelayFM at sign-up. Thank you so much to Curiosity Stream for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. So, Mr. Bezos is next. Yes, evil uh, super genius Jeff Bezos of Amazon. And Blue Origin. And Blue Origin. It is. It is the 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 bald head is the thing that makes him look like a. Well, his his style of talking is also kind of weird, and uh, I don't know what it is about it. I can't put my finger on it, but he has those moments where he totally feels like he's a James Bond villain. <laughs> so he, I do think he is better on stage than Musk. I mean, he's engaging. He had, he had yes. some like zingers. I mean, some of his lines were genuinely funny, but I, I he is sort of, he, he's intense in his own way. Mm -hmm. And so they talk a lot about Amazon, as you might expect. Um, Bezos story is really interesting. Like the, the history of Amazon is a fascinating story to me where like they were just, reselling books and he was like shipping them at his local post office and now it's 20 years later this huge company it's a hell of a story um but eventually of course they wind up talking about blue origin uh his his space company and 
he says, you know, basically I've been passionate about space and rocking since I was a boy and, you know, your passions choose you. And so uh, for Bezos, it seems that he views this as a very natural extension of what he does in his career, that of course he would do this. He has the resources, he has the passion. And he really tries to draw a contrast between the space industry today um, and where he wants it to be. So the space industry, even today, is very slow, only about 40 launches per year, uh, which is down at the peak, he says, was in the 1970s. And that, you know, just like we talked about with the shuttle and all these other things, that space takes time. Like, going and putting together a mission and putting together together hardware and flying it and then waiting nine years for your for your probe to reach Pluto, that is all very slow. Mm-hmm. And what Bezos says that he's setting out to do is to build infrastructure so the next generation can have a dynamic entrepreneurial, what he calls an explosion into space. Mm. And he really compares it to uh, starting Amazon, right? That they, Amazon was not the first e-commerce store. They did not invent credit credit card purchasing online they did not invent the post office they did not you know all this stuff already existed they assembled their business on top of all this existing infrastructure and that's what he wants to do uh for the next generation of of space going people yeah and and he's he seems much more i mean you look you could argue anybody who does a sp- any billionaire who does a space startup is not practical but right. Bezos seems <laughs> extremely practical in what he's doing. And he has not come as far with Blue Origin as SpaceX has. But who's to say that he isn't laying groundwork to surpass SpaceX, especially if Elon Musk's going to start sending things off to Mars, right? Maybe Bezos' approach, which is to be more careful, perhaps, build this infrastructure, uh, maybe maybe his game plan will end up really paying off. It, it may also be that they're just playing different games. But I like what he said about the idea of, uh, you know, we need to reduce the cost to getting to space we need to we need to make this so that everybody else can stand on the shoulders that likening you know the idea that once you can do credit cards in the internet and you've got secure browsers and you can do you know you've got shipping companies and all of that then people can make businesses on the internet and they can use those infrastructures like amazon did and uh that's how do you do that for space and so that somebody who's got something that needs to happen in space can get to space with it being a reasonable thing instead of it being this just like a barrier like well forget it you can't do anything in space space is too hard so I, I really like that about it um and and i mentioned this earlier i like his idea that uh you know he thinks that heavy industry and manufacturing stuff could move to space because of you know you can put up giant solar panels and get you know 24 hours a day you can get uh unfiltered sunlight and use right. it to power factories and things like that now the, the problem is what materials are there and uh, how do you get the materials up there or from somewhere else to there? And then do you get them back to Earth? And how do you do that? And that that there's some serious cost there. I do wonder if his his you know his maybe his Mars equivalent is something like a space elevator because although that sounds like science fiction, like the physics works that you could potentially build a space elevator. Um, at, at which point the cost of getting things into and out of space decreases to uh like almost nothing other than the 
building the elevator, which would be in- incredibly expensive. Because that's that's the challenge about how do you move heavy industry into orbit and still get things back and forth. Uh, that that requires uh, really cheap access to space, which is maybe kind of hard. But you know, but that's his that's his view is re- reusable spacecraft. You move the heavy industry into space, and then Earth becomes a place for. If you're thinking in terms of SimCity, you know, your residential and commercial zones. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept. And it, it does, I agree with you, it, it is not wild, as wildly different from what Musk is saying than it, than it first appears, I think. But I do think there is a, a, a point of difference where a lot of Bezos' conversation revolves around uh, business. And yes, yes. That, hey, you know what, uh, I started my business on the backs of all these other industries. Uh, Amazon has done that now with their Amazon cloud services, that things like Twitter and a bunch of other startups, including uh, the podcast network you're listening to, uh, run on part on Amazon services. And they have created, they have put together a set of infrastructure that entrepreneurs can now build their businesses on top of. And I'm not particularly uncomfortable with that but what what I, where i hit the little friction just internally is the kind of like the step beyond that like so if you're going to create um infrastructure where people can do business in space and and take advantage of things like you said uh energy and um the things you could do in in microgravity that you can't do here oh right. that's great but how in the world is that managed and do we end up in a situation how we've talked in the past about like moon mining that, you know, right. You mine the helium and, yeah. and, and you can do, and also you build things, build self operating factories on the moon. They, they're going to get, uh, you know, they've, they've got uh, good access to unfiltered sunlight as well. Right. Do you build things, you know, factories in space that are, I mean, the other, the question there is, yeah, raw materials. Do they come from the moon? Are they shot out of the moon? You get to build like mass drivers on the moon. Do you go and like lasso asteroids and bring them back into near Earth orbit and then mine from them? Is that how you're, you know, what are you manufacturing and where is it going? There are yeah. a, lot of, a lot of open questions there, but he's not wrong. I mean, this is one of those things that is, uh, and Musk has talked about this too. It, it is really interesting. Um, and again, I think if you're not somebody who thinks about this stuff, it seems just completely wacky and off the wall. But if you can get over this huge hurdle of the amount of energy you have to put into to get into space, if you can get over that at a reasonable price, which is what they're trying to do, um, space isn't just a place where you go and plant a flag, right? I mean, one of the interesting things <laughs> is that all the stuff we have on earth to make stuff is in the earth and on the earth, right? Because this is a, you know, yeah, stuff falls, you know, falls to earth from space and stuff, but basically it's what's, what we have to use as raw materials is here. This is what we've got. Um, Once you can go over that hurdle and you can go in space, you can get stuff from space, (laughs) And do things with it, either bringing it back to Earth or do things to build stuff in space. And it's way, you know, ultimately way better to build stuff in space out of stuff from space than to ship it all up from the Earth. But also, if you've got rare elements that are, are do not appear very often on the Earth, you could mine them and send them back to the Earth because we don't have a lot of those. So, you know, all of that is true and interesting if you can get over that big hurdle. And so, there, you know, he's not wrong about that. It's just a big picture. I mean, it's like sometimes I think Bezos is actually thinking way bigger picture than Musk in some ways mm-hmm. because he's trying to think about like long-term practical business 
applications of space technology. And Musk, I'm sure, thinks about that too, but that's not what he talks about. He talks about uh, more exciting things like Mars colonization, where Bezos seems to be much more, maybe disciplined is the right word, about like focusing on the things that really, um, that he thinks are more practical and that matter more. Yeah, and, I, and I've got no problem with any of that. I mean, my my question is, in all this, is how is it, how is it governed? How is it, how do we set boundaries up? Where if we're going to go out and mine the moon, or you know, capture helium from the moon and do all these different things, just how is that? Like, how does that work in well, terms of preserving the? You know, and it's. I mean, we, we learned that that uh, you you get it, you keep it. Now is the law of the land, at least in the United States. If you can. If you can take uh, unobtainium from an asteroid and bring it back to Earth, it belongs to you. That was uh, Obama signed that into law a few months ago. We and we talked about it. That, but you're right. There, there's so many. If, if there's a lot of commerce going on in space, um, there are going to be questions about: Is it the high seas out there? Is it you know file file a claim? Yeah. Uh, everyone for themselves, or is there some sort of structure around it? And if somebody decides that they're just gonna, uh, you know, write their initials, carve their initials into the moon, that's a reference to the tick, actually, um, who's going to stop them? And like, you know, what, what are, what are the rules about stuff like that? So, yeah. So, I mean, both this and the Mars, you know, people living on Mars in a colony, they, they both have similar types of questions that need answering. And I think that no government or agency or company is really equipped with those answers quite yet. So it's, it's going to be a process, uh, whether we move in one of these two directions or both directions or some other direction, uh, as, as we become more involved below or, you know, beyond low Earth orbit, just what is that? What does that mean? And uh, that's endlessly fascinating to me to debate. But circling back to Blue Origin for a second, you know, he's talking about all this stuff. But at least right now, what Blue Origin is focusing on is getting their their spacecraft, their rocket to be uh, reusable, which they are doing a phenomenal job of. But it is suborbital flight. And like we spoke about with Lauren last last time, it's more or less like rich people going up to the edge of space. And I've got no problem with that. If I could afford it, I'd probably do it, but maybe. But, you know, when Musk says we're going to go to Mars, I can see a path for SpaceX to go to Mars. I don't think it's going to be in the time frame he set out, but you can see that they are on that road. And I I have a harder time drawing the dots between where Blue Origin is now and this world in which Blue Origin and Bezos have built the infrastructure to make space business a thing Mm. is that fair yeah yeah i mean it's funny i i I also know that some people are really excited about virgin uh galactic and and didn't like me say negative things about them but this is one of my i'll say it one of my biases which is i'm not convinced that space tourism especially space tourism of the you know we're gonna just shoot you up like i think didn't musk say it's like saying you're in international waters it's just kind of an arbitrary line that gets drawn hey i'm yeah. in space now i'm not yeah um, and that was a shot at, at at blue origin basically um but for you know virgin does that uh, that's their plan um and uh it's a novelty to me and the real question is you know even with space tourism yeah i i think building an inflatable space hotel high beam um <laughs> building an inflatable space hotel or something like that would be a a 
also kind of interesting, but again, it's kind of a novelty. And I think the reality is when it starts being an infrastructure and there's business and there's applications beyond just, guess where I'm calling from? Space, right? <laughs> it, 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 you know, there needs to be more, I think, to space than just a, the novelty of somebody saying, woo, I went to space, right? That, that's not a, that's not a good, good enough reason to go anywhere or do anything, I think. I mean, it's cool if you're the person who's the, the traveler, great. I, I'm not I'm not disparaging that at all. I guess what I'm saying is in terms of policy, in terms of what I'd like to see from the world and human endeavor, sure. um, it needs, for it to be sustainable, it needs to be more than just a novelty. And and these guys both are focused on that, I think. It, it cannot be denied that it's not exciting to think about, and it can't yeah. be denied that it is, um, that, that these guys and, and Virgin Galactic and NASA and, and European Space Agency and everyone else um, that we are pushing forward in in some new and exciting areas, but until then, you know, you have things like like space tourism, and if that's the way that Blue Origin can fund this, you know, if that if sure if, if deploying CubeSats is how Elon Musk pays for his Red Dragon to land on Mars, then I got no problems with that. No, I agree, I agree. Um, and uh, I I just wanted my my meta comment about all this is uh. I, I, what a great time after that shuttle launch that I went to that it closed the door on the shuttle. Um, there was a lot of uh, people feeling down, feeling negative because the idea was, what does this mean for the U.S. space program? And when are we going to get there? And we still don't have any you know, capability to launch ourselves. Uh, that, that hasn't happened yet. But I actually think now seeing what's going on, I am incredibly excited about the future of, and, and in fact, the present of, space exploration because um, we not only have countries, including countries that are not traditional spacefaring countries working hard on this, like China and India, but, and and the US is doing its stuff and Russia is doing its stuff, but we've got companies. We've got SpaceX and Blue Origin, and there are others um, who are able to do what previously, not just previously only countries could do, but like previously only like a couple of countries could do. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting because like we were saying earlier about what, you know, what Elon Musk might want to do in terms of going to Mars. It's like, they don't have to play by the same rules. It gives us more different chances to try different stuff. How exciting is that? That, that, um, space is not something that is accessible only to a giant government bureaucracy. And who knows, it may be that the story of our uh, first factory in space or our first colonization of or visit to another planet is something that's driven by the impetus of a private company that doesn't have to deal with government funding and bureaucracy. And uh, if that turns out to be what happens, that will have some implications for how we, how governments fund space policy going forward too, right? I mean, if, if SpaceX sends people to, to Mars uh, and NASA is nowhere to be seen, um, those are going to be some interesting uh, congressional meetings, right? About yeah. like, why are we even doing a manned program or sorry, a crude program for NASA? They'll probably say, it'll be a jerk who said that. And he'll say manned instead of crude. And it'll be a guy, you know, it will a male congressman. Um, anyway, uh, right. Because if at some point, if you're NASA and, and the, the private enterprise is doing all of this, there is going to continue to be that question of like, well, why do you exist then? What are you for if private groups are more capable at some of this stuff than you are. Now that's a sure. that's a big if, right? That's a big if. It may be that these private groups talk a good game, but um, but they can't deliver 
because the the NASA way is the right way or the Russian Space Agency way or the ESA way or whatever. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. But I, I just I love the promise of that, that, the, that there's more uh, and different attempts to uh, approach how we go to space. Agreed. Well, space. I think that, space. <laughs> I think that does it for this fortnight, Jason. I think, I think so. I think we got two billionaires, and that is uh, that averages to one billionaire a week doing things in space, and that's enough for a fortnight, I think. I think so. If you want to find show notes uh, this week, you can find them in your app of choice, or you can find them on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 22. In the sidebar there, you'll see some links to uh, send us an email. You can find us on uh, the Tumblr, liftoffpodcast.space. Still a cool URL. Um, you can hit us, hit us up on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell. I'm at ismh. And the show is at liftoffpodcast. Until, actually, not till next fortnight, Jason, because I'm going to see you next week. But yeah, we, we will be together in San Francisco, but not talking about space. We'll be talking about computery things. But we'll be back out of each other's way and instead doing a podcast in, uh, in a fortnight. Sounds good. Until then, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.